This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. This is the Hack Podcast. Why isn't there more diversity in the elite levels of cricket? Because some codes like rugby league, football, a lot of diversity, but others are struggling. It's a conversation that's being had right now, especially in the top end. Later, we're unpacking why. We're also going to be looking at these changes announced by the government to make uni campuses safer. That's coming up too. First, though. Hack. You've got to be careful and you've got to vet the people that you book, particularly in a genre like metal, where it is often hiding just below the surface. On Triple J. Hitler salutes, white supremacy slogans, symbols of hate. I'm not talking about what's happening at some underground neo-Nazi meeting. This stuff is happening in the music scene in Australia. An investigation by hackers uncovered so-called Nazi bands in Australia's metal scene. It's something experts say has actually become a bit of an open secret. If you're into metal, I want to know if this is something you've noticed and how you feel about it. Does it make you uncomfortable when you go to gigs and notice some of this stuff? Is it something that you have noticed more of recently? Message in 0439757555. But it's not just Australian bands. There are calls for an American metal band to be pulled from an Aussie festival lineup over a previous scandal involving an onstage Hitler salute. A hack reporter, April McLennan, has been looking into this. And just a heads up, this story's got some bad language and details that you might find offensive. Headbanging along with the crowd, the lead vocalist of metal band Scaffers throws her neck back and lets out a fierce growl. The band's been together almost 10 years, and during that time, they say they've glimpsed the dark side of the metal scene in Australia. We were supposed to play a certain gig around September, out of coincidence. A fan of ours kind of discovered that one of the bands on the bill had very clear signs of being pretty fash. When they say fash, the band's actually referring to fascism. Here's another band member from Scaffers. They think that people should be able to say the most offensive, obscene bullshit and get away with it because metal's about being tough. And that's not what free speech is. The group that band members from Scaffers are talking about here was a Tasmanian-based band called Ignis Gehenna. I got in touch with them about what Scaffers is saying, but they didn't respond. Ignis Gehenna uses a modified Black Sun as its logo, printed on band merchandise and posters. The Black Sun was a symbol used by the Nazi party in Hitler's Germany, and it's pretty widely used by far-right groups, including outright neo-Nazis. Some of the lyrics in Ignis Gehenna's music also references Sig Runes, also known as SS, which was a symbol used by the Nazi organisation that carried out some of the worst atrocities in the Second World War, especially against Jewish people during the Holocaust. After seeing these symbols incorporated into the music of Ignis Gehenna, Scafus notified the promoter to raise its concerns. Initially, there was no change with the gig. It was scheduled to go ahead as planned. So Scaff has pulled out. I'm not trying to shut anyone up. We're literally just saying we will not play with you. We will not give you a platform, but do whatever the fuck you want away from us and away from our fans. In the end, the venue decided to can the whole event. So is this just a disagreement between two bands? Well, an investigation by Hack has found that white supremacy and so-called Nazi bands have become an open secret within the metal scene in Australia. You pretty quickly come across major bands in the Australian scene that have got some pretty out there and racist beliefs. Independent scholar in musicology and ethnomusicology, Dr Ben Hillier, studies the metal scene closely. Metal likes to pretend it's not political. NSBM, National Socialist Black Metal, is kind of a known genre. 
and most metal fans are trying to think of it as something that's off in the corner, that's not part of us, but won't actually do anything to keep it out of the scene. Ben says trying to distinguish between what are authentically held beliefs and what's just a joke, as bands accused of peddling hate speech sometimes declare, can make it difficult to hold groups to account. But even if you're trying to pretend it's a joke, it's like any kind of discrimination or hatred dressed up as a joke is still just discrimination and hatred. My issue with it is even if the band members themselves are not serious, politically committed neo-Nazis, they are nevertheless normalising this. Allegations about this kind of stuff in the scene in Australia aren't new. Queensland metal group Spear of Longinus is a band that appears to promote Nazism through its music. The group's first demo tape, released in 1995, was entitled Nazi Occult Metal with the title track featuring the lyrics. Long live National Socialism. Long live Germany. The party is Hitler. Follow-up albums include The Yoga of National Socialism, Black Sun Society and Swastika Lotus. I've also seen a now-deleted website of the band that features swastikas and sig runes. Hack contacted Spear of Longinus for comment and we didn't get a response. It's not just Aussie bands that are facing allegations like this in the metal scene. American heavy metal band Pantera is about to play here as the headliner at Knotfest, a major metal festival that's coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in the next few weeks. But Australian Black Death grind band An Effigy to Extinction is calling for Pantera to be pulled from the lineup. We've altered their voice to protect their identity. Pantera should absolutely not be headlining that. Why the hell would that be headlining what is supposedly the biggest metal fest in the country at the moment? The call for the band to be canned stems back to video footage taken in 2016 that shows the frontman of Pantera, Phil Anselmo, on stage at a gig doing what appears to be a Nazi salute and yelling out to the crowd, white power. Phil Anselmo apologised for his behaviour. I am a thousand percent apologetic to anyone that took offence to what I said because you should have taken offence to what I said. Despite that apology from Pantera, the band was recently pulled from three festival lineups in Germany and Austria. Hack contacted the event organisers to ask whether the cancellation was because of the 2016 incident but received no response. An Effigy to Extinction thinks keeping Pantera as the headliner at Knotfest sends the wrong message. We know that there's going to be a whole lot of people lining up to act as though a guy who dreams about white power on stage is somehow not a fascist or that it doesn't matter. We know people are going to be going to do that because they like the art. Hack contacted both Knotfest and Pantera for comment but received no response. So what to make of all this? There are real consequences to political action and political discourse within the scene. It's not just music. It's not just a joke. It's something that is serious. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan investigating there. And if you do want to read more about this, there's a big piece on it that you can find on ABC News. Also on Hack's Instagram, there's an explainer that's worth checking out as well. It's got all the details. A lot of comments coming through on this one. On Instagram, someone says, good to see the metal community coming together to weed out the bigotry. The metal community is awesome. Lee says, yeah, fortunately, Australia also has plenty of awesome metal bands that we can go and watch that are a positive influence. That sentiment being felt right across the board here. People saying it's not all metal bands, obviously. On the text line, someone says, as a metalhead, I have to Google a band's name and see if they're a nationalist, socialist, black metal band. That's usually the best way to tell. Someone else says there's always been an undertone of Nazism and fascist ideals in metal. To have it sneaking its way back to the surface is no surprise. Cut the scum out of our scene. 
and our show's fast. That's someone's opinion there. Well, let's get into this issue a bit more now with an expert. Dr Josh Ruse is from Deakin Uni. He's an expert in extremism. We talk to him quite often about uh, the alt-right, the growth of this uh, um, kind of language, these kinds of actions in Australian society. G'day, Josh. Thank you very much for coming on. Good afternoon. How big is this problem of neo-Nazi bands and extremist views being expressed in music? Extremist views have always been expressed in music in various various forms. Uh, I remember in my own youth, Rage Against the Machine were considered extremist uh, when I was, I was a young guy. And, and so it really comes down to what's the potential for harm as opposed to the potential for extreme ideas. And in this particular instance, we know that there are neo-Nazi bands out there who are playing and uh, effectively inciting racially based hatred and also potentially violence in their lyrics. And so that does have the potential to inspire violence and that's why it must be treated seriously. Okay, so there is genuinely a risk here of people who may not have had any interest in these ideas previously to be radicalised through music. Well, these groups are typically you know, charismatic. They're typically um, have good beats. People tend to buy into the music and um, and so become inspired. And then obviously the symbology uh, that's employed by those groups can also then become influential with the individuals. And it's not so much that these these movement these bands have the capacity to form a mass movement, but they they buy into a larger picture of breadcrumbing, attempting to attract people into the ideas through music, through conversation, and and some people around the fringes who may never join a neo-Nazi group may still be inspired by the lyrics and um, act those out. So is it something authorities would be monitoring? Authorities are certainly aware uh, of uh, the, the groups, but it's also the extent to which they could do anything about what the groups are up to, you know, and that would require considerable resources. For example, uh, information campaigns to make... Uh, music venues are aware of the, the challenges. They're also not necessarily likely to act um, in the absence of you know, detailed information, which is where good journalism comes in. And there was a really good article in the ABC today that really detailed the dimensions of the problem. And I think that's that's critical, is that journalists, scholars and, and others work to bring attention to these issues. Yeah, well, it's definitely something that Hack's been looking into. Our reporter, April McLennan, has been covering this for a little while and really trying to find out how big of an issue this is. What are the laws around this, Josh? Because, you know, like recently people will remember there's been this crackdown across the country on Nazi symbols, salutes, sim- symbology, that kind of thing. Does that include references in music? It doesn't uh, per se. The laws have been very quite clearly defined in relation to public acts um, displaying Nazi symbology. Uh, the Hitler salute, also the um, swastika and, and others targeted at Nazi groups uh, attempting to protest or you know, march through the city and intimidate others really. But what we're seeing here is a quite difficult to necessarily control dimension. If these groups were to do a Nazi salute on stage, and there has been many instances of that, they could certainly be held to account under the law. It's a matter of who's recording that, who's identifying it, um, and and how's that being passed on. So still there's an evidence, there's there's a threshold, and more attention would need to be paid to enforcing it. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Josh Ruse, an extremism expert, about this hack investigation into neo-Nazi bans, uh, extremist views in the metal scene. 
Josh, can you explain how big of a problem far-right extremism is in Australia now? Because it does seem like we're talking and hearing a lot more about it lately. Yeah, look, far-right extremism has been on the rise in Australia for about a decade. What really gave it a momentum was the uh, election of Trump. In, in many respects, opened the floodgates for acceptable, um, hateful language across you know, not just the US, but globally because of social media. And, and social media is also a critical dimension of this in spreading ideas internationally and building connections between groups and building a sense of momentum. In Australia, there's probably a couple of dozen committed hardline activists who show up at these, these rallies and protests time and time again. They haven't been particularly successful in growing the movement in terms of numbers, but they are highly committed to um, gaining media attention, to provoking and to within a very fine area of the law, like staying on the right side of the law as best they can but attempting to grow publicity and momentum for their movements. So the real danger is the individuals around the fringes of these groups who may be motivated to go further. And, I mean, I'm guessing it's mainly young men. How are they being recruited? Is it through social media? Yeah, there's a number of forums. I mean, a big reason behind the impetus for removing, um, for example, the, the right to do the Nazi salute and the swastika is because there's a, there's a dark subcultural capital associated with those symbols and... They carry an enormous uh, cultural power because they are directly associated with the horrors of the Holocaust, deep, dark sort of sense of, of history. And so young men who are particularly involved in gaming, online environments where there's um, much of this material, may well be attracted to that subcultural element, uh, that sort of um, resistance ideology that they seek to align themselves with and uh, the empowerment that it offers them. And so... To that extent, music and, and other forms can also offer them that sense of empowerment and that sense of rebellion. They might feel that, you know, gives them something, a source of meaning that they don't otherwise find. And in terms of music and using that as a vehicle for messaging all kinds of extremist views, is this something that's been researched a lot overseas as well? Has there been much of a look into this specifically from researchers? There has been a, 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 decent, a reasonably long history of looking into this, um, particularly in Europe and North America, where various forms and various subforms of um, metal have been associated with uh, far-right extremism. The Scandinavian countries are another case in point where this has been researched because there's an alignment between the sort of uh, Nordic gods and uh, the far right ideas about God and religion, uh, and they, they mix that into their music. And so there has been a, a pretty rich history of research in this. It's reasonably new in the Australian context, and people like Ben Hillier and others uh, here in Melbourne are kind of leading that again, and it's in really, really important work. All right. Well, we do appreciate you explaining all of that to us. Dr. Josh Roos from Deakin University, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thanks for your time. And a lot of messages coming through, people saying it's important to not paint the whole scene with the same brush because of a hateful few. Metal is the most inclusive community in the world. Dan from Canberra says, I just competed at a metal music competition in Germany. It's tough to hear the whole community painted with this brush. A lot of us are really inclusive. And someone else says, I play in a death metal band in Melbourne. There's plenty of older metal bands with racist platforms, but most newer ones aren't into that and are vocally anti-racist. So there you go. Uh, really important points there. Hack. It feels like this is something we have been fighting for for so long. On Triple J. Sexual violence for uni students is such a big issue. Like, the numbers speak for themselves. 
More than 14,000 students are subject to sexual violence a year in a university setting. That's according to some recent research. And on average, it means 275 cases a week. Like, that's staggering. And it's something we've been speaking about for years. There've been reports, there've been reviews, but it's still happening. There has been some changes announced though. Governments around the country have worked together to develop a new set of rules for unis, which have just been announced. Claudia Long explains what they are. A warning, this story does include some audio that listeners might find distressing. For decades, according to just about everybody, sexual assault and harassment on uni campuses has been a massive issue. I was stalked at university. And when we had our sexual harassment campaign, I got a phone call in the middle of the night threatening to rape me. And if I was a hunter! And if I was a hunter! I'd shoot them in their boxes! We're not here to be raped. We're not here to be made fun of. We're here to study, and we deserve to be safe while we do that. Students and safety advocates have long demanded unis do more to stamp this kind of culture out, protect students and support those who are subject to sexual violence. Now, a new regulator along with a national code could help with that. State, Territory and Federal Education Ministers have agreed to a national plan to address sexual violence in higher education. It includes a bunch of different actions, but there are two key parts. The first is a national code of conduct. It'll require unis to report to the public and to the federal government on how they're eliminating this problem at their institutions. They'll also need to consider and address the needs of students and staff most at risk of sexual violence, and that includes First Nations, LGBTQIA+, disabled, culturally diverse and international students. The code will be enforced by a new unit within the Federal Department of Education. Student accommodation run by universities is also going to be subject to it, as will those run by private organisations. The plan also includes a new independent student ombudsman. Students are going to be able to make complaints to this watchdog if they think their unis or institutions aren't doing enough. It'll be able to investigate and then do things like order universities to change their policies or pay students back their uni fees. It feels like this is something we have been fighting for for so long and the plan is better than I think we ever thought it could be. For years, Shana Bremner from NRAPE on Campus Australia has been one of the key campaigners pushing for change. The response to that from the university sector was one of just abject denial. So we were really up against a multi-billion dollar industry as a group of women with very little resources behind us by comparison. Current students have been involved too, including ANU student Nuria Olive, who is a co-director of anti-sexual violence group, The Stop Campaign. When you go to university, particularly if you are also living at that university for a prolonged period of time, however long that may be, you should be able to trust that institution and to feel and to be safe within that institution. Fellow ANU student Megan Rawlings, who's also a co-director of Stop, says students will still be keeping an eye on whether unis are meeting the mark. Whilst we're very optimistic, we are, I guess, keeping an eye on things to make sure that everyone does what they say they are going to do. So what happens if unis don't come to the party? In the past, many have made commitments and they haven't really delivered on them, though the sector's peak body, Universities Australia, says they do take this issue seriously and they welcome the new plan. Federal Education Minister Jason Clare says... Pretty brave university to, to not listen to the student ombudsman then there'd be powers that my department would have to make sure that that happens. Shana Bremner has some suggestions for what those consequences could be. Universities have proven to us over and over that the one thing they care about above all else is their bottom line because they do get billions of dollars of taxpayer funding and the government can withhold that funding. Hack on Triple J.
Yeah, Claudia Long with that story. And remember, if you or someone you know does need support, you can always get it at 1-800-RESPECT. That's 1-800-737-732. Hack. They're extremely talented. They just need an opportunity to develop. On Triple J. You know, cricket often brags about being our national sport. You notice it especially in the warmer months, in summer. But the one thing you might also notice watching cricket is the lack of diversity in Australian teams. And it's something that's being talked about in the Northern Territory at the moment because the NT has the highest proportion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia. But for the first time in years, it wasn't able to pull together a team for a national championship specifically for Indigenous cricketers. And people in the Northern Territory are asking why. Miles Holbrook-Walk has this story from Alice Springs. In Alice Springs, or Mbantwa, as it's known in local Aboriginal language, Aranda, Indigenous cricketers from all over are gathering for Grand Final Day. It's always special to come out and play uh, in these tournaments, but particularly to play a grand final. It's the National Indigenous Cricket Championships, and it's special for Kobe Ross, who's Torres Strait Islander and playing for New South Wales. It's a time for me to grow as a person, but also as a cricketer. And I've been having a great time here, been learning about my own culture. But there's a funny absence. In a tournament held in the NT every year, this year, there's no women's or men's team from the Territory which is really odd because this tournament prides itself on being a way to develop Indigenous talent. Yet there's no team from the place with the highest proportion of Aboriginal people. We just didn't have enough men's and women's players at a sufficient skill level that were available and and interested in playing. Gavin Dovey leads cricket in the Northern Territory and says they genuinely tried to organise teams. We could not have done more in the last couple of months to engage all the different areas of our game across the Territory to try and put ourselves in a position where this this wasn't an outcome, including trying to work really collaboratively with those other states and territories that are in a similar position. But to some players, that feels a bit off. And to hear that the uh, the reason was a lack of talent, I think is just completely untrue. And uh, that comment has definitely been, you know, condemned by so many players here. And I'm, I'm happy to say that, you know, I think that does toe the line on racial undertones. One Queensland player, Courtney Fakwande, says the lack of talent argument doesn't stack up. It feels like, uh, you know, the heart of the of the tournament is missing. You know, the locals, that this is their country and they're not even here. They weren't provided the opportunity to, to field the team. And what's got people scratching their heads even more is that just last week, Alice Springs hosted the Imparja Cup, a cricket comp for Indigenous players from all over the NT. Some say an obvious display of potential talent. Don't expect Indigenous people to walk out of the bush and start, you know, playing like Ricky Ponting. Former Indigenous cricketer and chief executive of TV network Imparja, Graham Smith feels particularly strongly about this. Aboriginal people have more talent. All you need to do is nurture it. What's happened here has now raised questions about whether cricket as a sport is doing enough to support Aboriginal players. We need to focus on talent identification because we can't make this, let this happen again. That's Ken Vowles, who's a retired Indigenous cricketer from the NT. He says it's not good enough to say there isn't enough talented players. What the secret is, I think it is no secret, it's just about increased funding in the Aboriginal cricket space. 
Cricket Australia declined an interview, but they say the national championships are an important part of developing First Nations players. But they reckon it's not the only way to engage Indigenous cricketers, and that over time they'll see an improvement. But players who've come to the NT this week for the comp, like Julie Muir from the New South Wales women's team, say it's a huge deal. Yeah, I think it's very important. Um, as, as you can see, um, we've got five girls that played in this tournament playing in Big Bash. This tournament brings up the next generation of, of kids coming through. Hack on Triple J. Miles Holbrook Walk, they're reporting from Alice Springs. Big thanks to Angel Parsons for producing that story as well. So we're asking, why is cricket struggling with diversity? Like, how big is this issue? Let's ask someone who knows a bit about it. Dani Saeed is a reporter at Crikey, former sports journo, major cricket fan, and he's with us now. G'day, Dani. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. This issue of diversity in cricket, something that's been talked about a lot in the past that you've noticed? Yeah, absolutely, and it's being talked about more and more often. And we, as you said before the show, the multiculturalism and diversity in cricket is something that's really noticeable. It's obviously a sport that's really loved by all sorts of Australians, but especially Australians from diverse backgrounds, Australians from South Asian backgrounds especially. And when you look at the national teams, you don't see a lot of that reflected. It's interesting, like, because at the junior levels, I think there is a lot more diversity, but something happens at those more elite levels. Like, what do you think's behind this? Absolutely. So we found out recently, so in December, Create Australia released a multicultural action plan, and we found out that 4% of cricketers in our elite pathways, so the level below playing for Australia, are from South Asian backgrounds, which is the scope of the study, but they are probably the bulk of, of diverse cricketers. Yeah. And we find that the participation numbers are much, much higher, lower, lower down the systems, and they seem to drop out around about the top levels of club cricket. So what our grade cricketers listening in would know as, as first or second grade. And where that starts to become semi-professional, it starts to become a bit of a job. And so that's where we start to see that drop-off point. And so what's the answer here? Because I imagine Cricket Australia is trying to figure out what to do. We've got people like Usman Khawaja speaking out about it, saying, you know, cricket is white dominated at the moment. Obviously, those voices help to raise awareness of the issue. But what do you think needs to be done to kind of address the problem? Well, absolutely. It's like Ken Vol said in the package as well. The It's all about funding. It's all about directing and engaging with communities specifically in the ways that they engage with it. So we know, for example, if we look at South Asian communities, that they like short-form cricket. We know that because Create Australia's research tells us that. We know that in the Territory, for example, again, we have to engage with it a little bit differently. Our seasons are flipped around. It competes with football. So there's different ways of engaging with different communities and we need to be really specific about how we do that and really sincere in how we do that with funding. It's... It's amazing to me that we can have one, effectively, Usman Khawaja, a South Asian cricketer, make a substantial test career out of 400-plus male test cricketers. But when we look at the community level and we're looking at the opportunities that we give to different organisations, it's the Scots Olds boys that get to play against the Scots first at the SCG. Mm. It's those kinds of opportunities that we give in the community. It's definitely like a massive issue for Cricket Australia. Like I know that they have this goal of wanting to double the number of South Asian players 
involved across Australia's professional competitions over the next few years. So definitely they're looking into it. I guess it's not just players though. Like what about uh, leadership roles within cricket, coaching staff, that kind of thing? Is there much diversity in those areas? Yeah, absolutely. In a way, and anecdotally, when I talk to people in the community about this, when I talk to coaches especially, and we talk about the kinds of diversity and the kinds of barriers that are involved, we find often in the case of South Asian communities especially that volunteers and coaches aren't that hard to come by. Parents are really invested in um, parents and and families and, and, and support networks, our villages, are really invested in kids playing cricket. Mm. Um, and we're not, so that's really, really positive to see. What we want to see now is much like with the participation drop-offs because we know that kids play in parks. We play informal, uh, informal forms of cricket uh, at a much higher rate than other demographics. So much like it is with playing, it's about converting that into, into formalised participation. So having those umpiring pathways, having those coaching courses in sort of Western Sydney or in, in the outskirts of southeastern Melbourne, for example. And part of that is happening at the moment and that's really committed and so that's a metric in which we've sort of seen a lot of improvement. And is it something that's being discussed a lot more now that you think when you're having conversations with people, I mean, some people are messaging in saying, oh, there's a whole issue around cricket losing participation numbers across the board, but this is a like specific part of this. Are you hearing more and more chat about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think not to be cynical, but money talks and the centre of power in cricket at the moment is in India. That's where the money is. It's massive, massive, massive amounts of money that are developing the women's game especially, but are developing over there. We're about to see some of our best players play in the IPL, the Indian Premier League. And so when you can access those communities here, that's when we're starting. Now we're starting to see that, that sort of ball cut start to roll. Interesting stuff. We appreciate your insight. Thank you so much, reporter Cricket Nut, Dunny Saeed. Thank, Thank you very you so much, much for coming Dave. on Hack. Thank Cheers. you. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack.